please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our sermon today is once again from Psalm 121. These are God's words. A song of ascents. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to stumble. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will not slumber and will not sleep. Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your soul. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from now until forever. Amen. You can take your seats. Thank you, Mark. The last time we considered the psalm, I kept our focus to a couple of elements in the first four verses only. And those were, first, that the God who we call upon for help is the one who made heaven and earth. He is the invisible, all-powerful creator. And second, that this invisible God never sleeps. He is always active, always attentive to our need. With these two strong truths, these two self-evident truths, we proved and meditated on the wisdom of placing your faith in the God who exists in an invisible realm. Knowing who he is, it is obvious that the help he offers is superior to anything that any of his creatures could give. He sustains all created things with other created things, air, water, food, warmth, etc., And more than this, he is upholding all created things by the word of his power. So it follows that any help that a created thing could offer has to be inferior to the creator's help. All other helpers are dependent on God in the first place for their being. So all this being true, it is wise to seek help from the source of all power, Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. So this psalmist was wise, and this wise man, as he looked to God for help, he lifted his physical eyes to the mountains, understanding that in some sense, this is the direction one ought to address the omnipresent, invisible God. He is the God who dwells in high places. He made his temple, his dwelling place, on a mountain, the Temple Mount, And he did this not merely because it was the best of all locations, but because it tells us something about who God is. If Solomon built God's temple near the coast in a low-lying valley, it would communicate the wrong things about who God is and what worship should be, what it ought to be. All of life, all of worship is, in a sense, an ascent to him. As Christians, it is our joyful calling to lift up our eyes and to head upward. And this is why the psalmist did what he did with his body and why we ought to imitate him. What we do with our bodies matters. We've talked about this many times. Creation reflects heavenly patterns, so to ignore or discard these earthly realities is to despise heaven itself. So in faith, we look up to the invisible God for help. This is a sum of last week's teaching. 
Now this week, our main consideration will be the shape or form of God's help. According to the psalmist, what form does God's help come in? These are the next considerations of our text, how the invisible God helps Israel. Before we consider the details of the psalm, I think it is good for us to remember what kind of song this is. This is basic, and I've pointed this out before, but since this is a God-inspired song of Scripture, there is no wasted space in the song. All the words and ideas contained in it are important and necessary for us to meditate on. And with all of these God-inspired details, together they form a coherent whole. Psalms are never smatterings of ideas, but a set of ideas supporting a greater truth. So let's go back to the beginning. I've got, you've got the text there in front of you. Because I want us to consider some details that we passed over or we didn't um, point out before. We're going to read the first four verses once more. And this time I want, to, want you to notice the pronouns. The pronouns are details that we could easily miss if we're not reading the psalm carefully. First, the psalmist refers to himself with singular personal pronouns. I will lift my eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come. My help comes from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. This is his individual response to God. Then he jumps to plural pronouns and he says, he, that is Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, will not allow your, plural, foot to stumble. He who keeps you, plural, will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel, that is Israel, a corporate entity, a body made up of many members, will not slumber and will not sleep. So what are we to make of this transition from his individual perspective to addressing the corporate body? This transition could seem jarring to us. He just jumps. But since it wasn't for the God-inspired songwriter, we know that it shouldn't be jarring to us. We need to conform our thinking to his. This is a natural and godly way to write a song. This psalm, with individual and corporate elements side by side, form a fitting song for Israel to sing on their ascent. So I want to draw a couple lessons from the psalmist pronoun switch. First, I believe the pairing of this individual perspective with the favor shown toward Israel shows us something of the nature of the covenant and how God's help comes to man. We always worship the God of the covenant as individual parts or members of a whole. We always do. This is how we should naturally think when we sing and pray. We have individual responsibilities before God, and when we obey them, we are operating in and building up the body. And in the same way, when the body obeys, the blessings of the covenant, obedience, covenantal obedience, flow down into its members. We have touched on this before, but I think it's helpful to point this out again the idea of a true covenantal connection between the members of the church is assumed all throughout Scripture, and it is assumed here by the psalmist again. When he decides to look up to the hills with his individual set of eyeballs, he does so with an understanding of the body he is a part of, and he naturally brings these corporate realities into his reflections. God chose a people for himself. The psalmist is part of that people, and if he is to be answered individually, 
he will receive help in terms of his covenantal relationship with God. This is hard to explain and hard to relay the importance of this, but let me try to break it down even further. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, in the chapter on God's covenant with man, chapter 7, it says this, and I've got this in your sheet too. The distance between God and the creatures is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. By way of covenant. I remember reading this for the first time as a Baptist, and admittedly I was a pretty immature Baptist, and I thought this is a strange way of describing how God's, quote, blessedness and reward comes to his creatures. Wouldn't it be more natural to say that his blessings come by way of Jesus? Wasn't the, quote, voluntary condescension of God's part, that's what the confession says, wasn't that the sending of Jesus? Wasn't that the condescension? Why would the framers of the Westminster describe God's condescension and his closing in of the distance that sin made, why would they frame it primarily in terms of the covenant? This was foreign thinking to me. <clears throat> it is true that there was a condescension in the Son of God's incarnation, obviously. But if we are to understand how the condescension, that condescension, benefits us at all, we have to first understand the condescension made through the covenant that was made first with Abraham, recorded for us in Genesis 17. Now, Genesis 17 details one of the most weighty and profound realities to have ever happened to mankind. You have to catch this. You have to feel the weight of this. In it, we see that God made for himself a people. He didn't have to do this. He could have left all mankind at a distance in their sin. But in Genesis 17, God drew some people near to him and, in a sense, split the world in two. There was now a people in this sinful race called God's people. The world would forever be divided between God's people on one side and the people of the world on the other. We cannot miss the weight of that moment in history, according a recorded for us in Genesis 17. It has forever changed the world. It has forever shaped reality. Up until that point, God had shown his favor to the odd individual, but then he made for himself a people, a people that would be called his. This covenant people was established first through Abraham and would carry on through his seed after him. They were to be a holy people set apart for God in the earth. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses said to Israel this, For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his affection on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples, but because Yahweh loved you, and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, 
from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He set his affection, his attention and favour on this particular people. And this favour was formally established with a relationship called a covenant. And this was an everlasting covenant. After the events of Genesis 17, the world would never be the same. Israel would always exist as the people of God in the world. Our psalmist understood the profundity of the formation of this covenant and saw himself and his ascending brothers and sisters in terms of it. They would be blessed and rewarded because of the condescension that God made toward them, closing the distance that our sin made between us and God, making them the people of God in the earth. And so, after the psalmist declares where his individual help comes from, he naturally sings about the body he is a part of. And we as individuals should do the same. Declare where our help comes from. Our God, our covenant God, is the maker of heaven and earth. And then with the body, declare how our confidence relates to our covenantal inclusion, our covenantal standing. He will not allow your foot to stumble, Israel. He will keep you. Uh, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, who, he who keeps Israel will not slumber and will not sleep. Which brings us to the second lesson I want to draw from the shift in pronouns. These blessings, this help, is for the corporate body of Israel not for every individual member of Israel. They do have application to individuals in an indirect way, but that is not who they are given to directly in the text. And this is important for us to understand for a number of reasons that I will get into shortly. Now, I remember as a cynical, unconverted teenager raised in the church who had no concept of covenantal realities, scoffing at those who put their faith in texts like this. Uh-huh. So you believe God will keep Christians from stumbling, eh? I know plenty of people who kicked the coffee table while walking around by faith and not by sight, and they ended up stumbling out of the faith. What good is this promise if it does not have any resemblance to reality? That is what I thought. That is obviously a sinful kind of questioning God. It didn't start with, God must be speaking the truth here, so how is it true? But it also has to be said that if I was taught a coherent covenantal worldview, the one that is plainly taught in Scripture, it would have been impossible for me to raise these objections. We'll see why soon. I only bring up my experience to say this, that having a robust understanding of covenant theology is essential not only for biblical interpretation, but also for apologetics. It is impossible to understand the nature and form of the promises of Scripture without understanding the nature of the covenant. This was on full display a few weeks ago, but in a different context, when Ben Shapiro, who everyone knows is an Orthodox Jew, quoted this very psalm on Twitter in response to the terrorist attack on Israel. On October 10th, as Israel was mounting a counteroffensive, he simply put, Behold, he who keeps Israel 
will not slumber and will not sleep. There was plenty of scoffing going on on that thread, and though much of it was distasteful and insensitive, Israel did suffer a tremendous injustice that day, and that was often not taken into account on Twitter. Surprise, surprise. That being true, it was reasonable to question how Ben Shapiro was applying this passage to modern-day Israel, and to also question the confidence he was drawing from it. His people did go through the Holocaust. On what grounds could he argue that that won't happen again through a large Islamic State alliance that could come against Israel? The truth of Psalm 121 did not prevent Israel from being destroyed in 70 AD, and it didn't keep them from being scattered and stateless up until the late 1940s. If Ben Shapiro was using the passage correctly, there would be many reasons to believe the Bible was untrue, or at the very least, that God's keeping power doesn't achieve much. Obviously, Ben's greatest need is to submit to the Messiah of, the, of his scriptures, but the reason he applies Psalm 121 incorrectly is his deficient understanding of covenant theology. Many unflinchingly pro-Israel dispensationalists have the same problem, applying the promises of Psalm 121 to the modern state, Jewish state. They read Psalm 121 like an Orthodox Jew. But this reading of Israel is obviously far too simplistic. This brings us back to our main consideration for this sermon. What help is this psalm promising to Israel today? And by Israel today, I mean the new covenant people. There is one covenant people on the earth. And this people is made up of many races that have all been engrafted into the Israel of old. So what shape or form does this help come to Israel, this Israel? Remember, I pointed out last week that a main theme of the psalm is the keeping power of God. I pointed out that the word keep or keeping is mentioned six times in this psalm. But old covenant Israel, the one who originally sung this psalm, were in a sense, in one sense of the word, not kept by God. They did stumble over the stumbling stone, as Romans 9 says. Their foot was allowed to stumble. This psalm says he will not allow Israel's foot to stumble. More than this, Paul even points out that the same, in the same section of Scripture that God caused the stumbling. Behold, I, God, am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In Zion. And God, when speaking of the need for the, new, for the new covenant, said this. They did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. So what should we make of this? How is this keeping of the covenant keeping of the covenant people, true. It's clearly complicated. Israel were lost. What good is the keeping power of God if Israel were lost? Now, if any of my truly reformed brothers who have determined to have me as one of their opponents wanted a sermon to throw me under the bus with, this one will do it. I'm about to speak into this mic things that no doubt they would deem heresy, and after that, sometime this week, probably, 
we will upload it to Spotify for them to twist and pull apart as they wish. But of course, I do not do this to ruffle their hair. I don't enjoy being rejected by them. I would rather it not be this way. But what they think of me should have absolutely no bearing of what I preach to you, right? I'm preaching these controversial things because I love you. I love you enough to not shy away from giving you the full counsel of God, even when that counsel is difficult or or unpopular in our day. Today, I'm concerned with teaching you about what it means for God to keep Israel. I want your confidence, your hope to be in the God who keeps. I want that confidence to be cemented in the rock of his word. I want you to have the confidence that he gives and that confidence alone. I want you to understand his covenantal faithfulness and the way that he reveals his covenantal faithfulness. Related to this, I don't want you to have the easiest possible path to assurance. I want you to have a biblically grounded assurance, no matter how hard that is to attain. I want you to have your hope grounded in his word because every other foundation is weak. It is breakable. We can only know how God works from his word. Everything else is speculation that leads to idolatry. So when the psalmist says to Israel, Yahweh is your keeper, how did this apply considering the fact that they were eventually lost? We read from Deuteronomy 7 earlier to highlight the profound reality of a covenant people entering into history. I'm going to begin to answer this question by reading the verses that follow that pas- follow in that passage. So continuing on from verse 9, and I'd encourage you to follow along. This is important. You shall know, therefore, that Yahweh, your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness to a thousand generations with who? Those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those, to, uh, those who hate him to their faces to make them perish. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. There it is, guys. This is how God keeps his covenant and loving kindness to a thousand generations. He is a faithful God who keeps covenant with who? With those who love him and keep his commandments. Heresy? No, this is plain. This is biblical covenant theology. He keeps covenant with only those who love and obey him. And we taught from our Lord that these things are connected. He said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. One flows into the other. And what does he do with those who hate him that are within the covenant people? Remember Moses is speaking here in Deuteronomy 7 to the covenant people. He says, God will repay them to their faces to make them perish. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So in light of how God keeps covenant, what does Moses tell the people of God to do? Verse 11, 
therefore, therefore is a really key word. In light of all that God, how God keeps covenant, therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. They are to respond in faith to this understanding of God's covenantal workings and obey. True faith leads to obedience. We will consider what this obedience looks like in greater depth later. If you are alarmed by the way I've just framed things, I just want to ask you to be patient with me. I realize this is not how things are typically framed. At the moment, I just want you to, to see if I'm drawing these things from the passages in front of you. So now let's ask, if, God is keeping, uh, if God's keeping of covenant members, the kind we're considering in our psalm today, is conditioned upon individuals' obedience, and that is what we clear, clearly just read, then why were Israel lost? It wasn't because God didn't keep them. It was because they were disobedient. He would have kept them if they obeyed. That is what Deuteronomy 7 says. He keeps covenant with those who love and obey him. This is how God described Israel's response to the covenant he made with them through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 65. And verse 2 of this this passage I'm about to read is used in the New Testament to explain the state of Israel in the first century. So this is God speaking, speaking about Israel. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation which did not call on my name. So there is the establishment of the covenant with a people. This is the condescension of God. He permitted himself to be sought by this particular people. He permitted it. Carrying on with verse 2, I have spread out my hand all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burnt offerings on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh, and the broth of offensive meat is in their pots who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom, both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says Yahweh. So pulling all these things together, if we think that this keeping of Israel found in our psalm is a keeping to salvation for every covenant member, that doesn't really work. This is a keeping that can only be for those responding in faith to the covenantal call to obedience. Does God help the disobedient just because they are in the covenant with him? No. As it is recorded in Isaiah and in many other places, they provoke him to burning hot anger. They are smoke in his nostrils. He blesses the righteous and sets his face against those that do evil. Now, at this point, I think 
we need to consider what kind of obedience God required of Old Testament Israel and consider how this relates to us. The obedience required of them and of us is not sinless perfection. People can misunderstand what I'm saying here. Obedience looks like dealing with sin as God prescribes, not sweeping it under a rug of silence, but confessing it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. This if condition shows that there are things required of us to receive forgiveness. This is the plain meaning of the words. Looking upon this requirement to confess, we in faith obey it. Dealing with sin was at the heart of the sacrificial system given to Israel. Those who had faith in God's judgment of their sin, in faith, offered sacrifices. Through this obedience, there was a visible confession of their sinfulness. Those who obeyed in this way did not cease from sinning entirely. It presupposed their sin. If an Israelite said that they had no sin... They deceived themselves and the truth was not in them. But if in faith they confess their sins, the righteousness of God, not their own righteousness, seen in a shadowy form in the requirement of sacrifices, was theirs. That is what obedient faith looks like. If we do not deal with our sin as God requires, are we being obedient? Of course not. A refusal to confess sin is a disobedience that leads to death. God chose to make covenant with the sinful people, knowing that they would continue to be sinful and would need to deal with their sin as he told them to. But if they faithlessly ignored God's method of dealing with sin, he opposed them. <clears throat> the disobedience of Israel that cut them off from God was that Knowing about the righteousness of God, that's what Romans 10 says, knowing the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own. They knew the righteousness of God. As I just said before, they could see it in, the, in a shadowy form. They knew it because God had taught them it through the requirements of the law, including the sacrificial system. But they did not cling to the righteousness of God on offer, a lamb without blemish, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, his perfect life, and instead they trusted in the filthy rags of their own righteousness. So when we saw earlier in Deuteronomy 7 that God keeps his covenant with those, with, to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, this keeping of commandments is not a sinless life of perfection. It is a disposition toward God's gracious law a disposition of faith. This response of faith to his commandments is seen in true repentance and works of love. And we understand from other passages of scripture that this is all of God. He is the one who gives us the, the ability to obey him. He gives us the faith that is required to receive him. Romans 9, 7. So then it depends, it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. So I hope I've established it sufficiently for you all 
that God only keeps his covenant with those who love and obey him. That is, those in Israel who respond to his commands with faith. If this is the case, how should we read Psalm 121? This most definitely should shape and frame the way we think about his covenant keeping. The sum of the matter is, as we obey, he keeps us. And this is a wonderful thing. Let's finish by briefly considering each way he keeps us in light of the way he keeps the covenant, the details of our psalm. First he says, he will not allow your foot to stumble. Remember again, this is a psalm of ascent to be sung on an ascent. For a people on a literal journey up to the temple, literally walking uphill, this is a vivid and tactile symbol. As you feel the stones crunching under your feet, you can understand quite well what it is for God to keep your foot from stumbling. For those who have faith, you can have full assurance that God will not let you go as you, in faith, obey him on this ascent. He does not look upon your weak and often failing faith with indifference. He will keep you from stumbling as you take the hard and narrow path upward. He wants the the ascent of the faithful to be successful, and he will ensure that it is successful. He does this by not allowing your foot to stumble. He then says in verse 5 through 7, Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your soul. As we go about the ascent of the Christian life, living by faith and in the power of his spirit, walking in the will of God, there are many natural troubles that could keep us from enduring to the end. Here the psalmist represents those with the burning heat of the day and the dangers of night. The sun has the ability to strike you down, sap your strength and increase your troubles, and the moon gives just enough light to enable and facilitate many nighttime evils. The sun and the moon oversee them all. But Yahweh will prevent the evil that could overcome you. He is the keeper of those who love and obey him. And here, his keeping is also described as shade on your right hand. This shade hides you from the evils of the sun and the moon. Now, if we are supposed to understand that the sun and the moon here have evil intent towards us, Since God is the creator of them both, we can know that whatever energy they might use against us has to first be given to them by God. This means that God can render them totally impotent if they would go outside his will. This means they cannot touch those who love and obey him without his approval. Also, highlighting God's protection from both the sun and the moon speaks to his comprehensive 24-hour protection. Remember, he who keeps Israel will not slumber and will not sleep. He is attentive all the time. He can always be an effective keeper of your soul. Lastly, in verse 8, the psalmist says, Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from now until forever. Calvin said of this verse, The sense is, whatever thou shalt Undertake or engage in during thy life 
shall come to a happy and successful termination. Who knew Calvin was a prosperity teacher? (laughs) His interpretation is right, though. That's what this is talking about. This going out and coming in is a shorthand way of describing the normal undertakings of life. The covenant people could worry about these things, but they shouldn't. God is in control. The psalmist is saying the same thing that our Lord taught. We are to be anxious for nothing. God is sovereign. He is in control of everything. All evil things and all good things. Nothing is hidden from him or outside of his reach. The going out and coming in of life that we experience are small matters for him. He will keep you from now until forever. God ensures that our upward ascent of obedient faith will end with us standing in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. Let's finish by reading a summation of this truth given to us in the New Testament in the doxology of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So let's sing Psalm 121 now. Yahweh. 